God's calling. Interesting text, series of texts. It's one of many in the Bible where God reaches out to people and taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, you, I got a job for you. So what do we, how do we respond to that? You know, the first response is, man, dude, you got the wrong number. This must be a spam call, bam, a butt call. The second thing is you start to reason. If you look at the answers people give in the story of the Bible, when God speaks out and says, I've got a job for you, and it's going to be the pits. <laughs> it's going to be hard work. They start arguing with God. They say, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not wise enough. I stutter. I'm young. I'm weak. And God never takes no for an answer, so he keeps knocking on the door. Finally, people give in and say, okay, show me what to do. So the two responses to God's call are, one, denial and arguing and saying no. But finally, most people in the Bible and most people in real life says, here I am, God, send me. Kind of reminds me of my new little Labrador puppy. Kind of, here I am, Daddy, play with me. I don't know what I want to do, but I, we're going to have a good time doing it. I, can't, I call this response to God's call the movement from thinking to the movement to trust. And it's a form of radical trust, isn't it? It's a trust where we let go of our own weaknesses, our own needs, our own desires for ourselves, our own ideas of who we are and who we're called to be, and trust God to take that first step. I remember 25 years ago when I was starting seminary in my early 50s, our class at the Episcopal Seminary in Austin was made up of a motley crew, people about my age, kind of grown-up refugees from the 60s, looking for meaning, looking for vocation. We were doctors, lawyers, ranchers, accountants, businessmen, teachers, English professors, poets, housewives. We all came there together to answer a perceived call from God saying, this is what I want you to do. And what was interesting about those early conversations in those early years, none of us knew where that journey was going to lead. We had to take that first step. We had to finally say, here I am. I don't know where I'm going, but let's get on with it. And I think that's the great story of human existence, how we respond to a call from somewhere else. In this case, the divine call. I was guiding for Casting for Recovery about a month ago, a great women's breast cancer organization group here in the valley. And uh, well, my client that I was guiding that day fishing had not only had a mastectomy for breast cancer, she had after that, was helping a friend work on a car, the jack slipped and crushed her legs and she wound up losing her leg. So she's not only a breast cancer survivor, but an amputee. She was so full of joy, so full of life, so full of willing to try something new, I just kept saying, she's just the example of saying, here I am, God, send me. See, radical trust, I told the people at the Casting for Recovery at the end of that retreat, 
I said, you each have two questions that you have to answer, not only today, but with your life. It's who am I and why am I here? Those are the great stories of human existence. And I told them the most important thing for you to remember now is your, your question may not be who am I, but the question may be who am I not? And I told them you're not a disease, you're not an ICD code of a diagnosis. You're a human being with losses and desires, and you're here for a purpose and for a reason. And that's the very question the disciples had to face when they saw Jesus saying, come on. It's interesting that in that New Testament passage, they don't really say, well, where are we going or how do we get there? Why are we doing this? They just follow. No questions asked. I think life is not a diagnosis. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. David Brooks, in a remarkable new book he has out in a podcast with Kate Baller, he calls that looking at the gaze of another human being and learning who they are. That's what Isaiah is saying. Here I, here I am. Tell, teach me what to do. Give me the words to speak. I think this dilemma between trusting and thinking is one of the great paradoxes of human life. For me, my best of his decisions have been not when I thought, not when I was rational, not when I overanalyzed, which is what scientists tend to do, but when I trusted. We have to move out of our desires to control, to shape the narrative, to set the goal trust. I told my students when I was teaching, don't think about the last step of your journey. Take the first step because we don't know what the last step is going to be. And I think this, this chapel is living in this time of radical trust. And I think the call of Sharla and of, and of Robert, her predecessor, and Agile, the predecessor before her, are all living examples of how trust can shape and form a community. I was thinking back to that great story about who I am. Great song from Les Mis. If I'm sure you remember that, who, I, who Am I? There's a great skit from Saturday Night Live where it's a, a singing lobster in a pot of boiling water singing the, the soundtrack from Les Mis. And it's a great musical interpretation of the frustrations of being a boiling lobster. <laughs> who am I, Lord? Well, I'm getting ready to get boiled in a pot, but I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to answer. I'm still going to live. So the question becomes, how do we live into this radical trust that these two passages call us to do? Well, I think the Quakers had some ideas about that, and that was two things. Uh, you meet God in silence. You need time alone to listen to God, how he is speaking to us, what he's asking of us what he's not asking of us. But I think we also discern that process of responding to God's call in the midst of community. People like this. People that you pray with. People that you eat with. People that you fish with. Discernment is a complex, lifelong process. It's part of a journey. It's not the end of our journey, but it's the beginning. And I would remind you all, and I, I've talked with Charlotte and Robert about this, this 
this notion of beginnings and new beginnings is such a powerful metaphor at a big level, but also for our individual level. The community has reached out now to Charlotte to lead us into new waters. That's what she feels called to do. It's interesting that the conversation never, probably, probably entered her mind, but I never heard her vocalize it. She never said, how long can I do this? Well, could be a year, could be 10 years, could be 20. None of us know how long we have left to do the work God's calling us to do. But that radical trust that Charlotte shared with the chapel and that the chapel dared to risk by calling her in the midst of a cancer diagnosis is exactly the kind of radical trust that the disciples felt when they simply put on their sandals, put down their nets, and followed this wandering preacher called Jesus. So how do we live into radical trust? I think there are three questions. One is individuals. We have to find the time to be still and to listen. And then the, the second issue is how do we do that as a community, as a people of God? How does Snowmass Chapel move into these new waters? The chapel won't be the same this time next year. It'll feel differently. It'll be better in some ways, maybe a little worse in others. That's part of human nature. We all have ebbs and flows of our life together, but I do trust that God is calling the new leadership, the board, and all of you all into a new way to live together, a new way to fish for men. And then I think also the big macro question is society is facing these same questions. Here I am, God, lead us. Who do we call to be our next leader? It's not, not just who we vote for. It's what we want the narrative of our lives together in this country to look like. We want it to be a kind, loving, generous, spirit-filled place together. I would think that's what we all hope for in either political party. I think this movement from thinking to trusting is the hardest movement any of us have to make. I think I may have shared this story with you before. If I, ha if I have, forgive me if you heard it. I was involved with a CPR case. A man had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. He was given CPR on the scene by the EMTs for 30 or 40 minutes and showed up and got another hour of CPR in the ICU. And his pupils were fixed and dilated. He had decorticate posturing, which is a neurologic movement when the brain is dead. The nurses said, let's call it. I said, let's call it. My rational brain said, let's call it. We're not doing this man or his family any favors. And after those words came out of my mouth, I had this intense, profound feeling that there's more to the story here. There's more to this man's story. There's more to our lives as nurses and doctors than a dying patient right now. So I said, let's just give it one more chance injected his heart with epinephrine. His pulse came back. He woke up 24 hours later and went home a week later and ran his business for 25 more years. I don't know how that happened. It was certainly not science. But I had to trust the voice that I heard. That voice that was speaking to me, not in words, but of that intense, profound sense that God is 
involved with this story in some capacity. And I think that's the kind of, that's the kind of metaphor that I think is, is around us all day, every day. It just doesn't happen once every now and then. My CPR pastor in my seminary, CPR is clinical pastoral, uh, edu CPE, clinical pastoral education. In, in a seminary, most people uh, get sent to a hospital, but since I was already working in the hospital, they told me I had to go to jail for a year. <laughs> so I did 20 hours a week of pastoral counseling at the Travis County Jail dealing with inmates from all walks of life, white-collar criminals to murderers to rapists to child abusers to petty thefts. And if you have never been in a jail and heard that sliding door lock shut behind you, you ought to give it a try. <laughs> because it will change your life. You'll begin to see human beings and the world we live in in a totally different way. And as the layers of who we are and self-identify with start to get stripped away, we move into that notion of that journey from fear and overthinking things to just saying, okay, here I am. Let's take this journey together and see what happens. And I began to see prisoners in a whole different way, and I began to see that I was very much locked up in my own prison just like they were in theirs. I just had to listen and trust God to be there in those conversations and to move and shape and hopefully change some of the patterns that they had been living in. How that worked, you know, you never know. But I do believe that that's the, the image that I think we need to keep in mind. We have a tendency to slam the doors of our jails shut in our lives, to get locked into traditional, old, sterile ways of thinking when God is calling us to move out of that, to trust me, to live in a new way, to trust calling a new pastor, to trust being a different Snowmass Chapel for this valley for the next 20 years. That kind of trust, I think, is the story of the Bible. It's a story told over and over and over again from Genesis to Isaiah and Jeremiah prophets, and Amos, and Jesus. It's a story of trusting God to enter the human condition, enter the human story, walk the journey with us, and live into that radical trust that these passages call us to live in. I'd like to close with a beautiful, beautiful prayer by one of my favorite writers. It's called The Prayer of Unknowing which in and of itself is a, is a giveaway. It's by Thomas Merton, Trappist Monk. It's not the prayer of knowing, but it's the prayer of unknowing. And he writes, My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that that desire and all that I am doing, I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire 
And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always. And though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. And you will never leave me to face my perils alone. 